And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay interview. Hello, everyone. Today is a special day for me. I've been given the chance not only to meet but also to interview as my guest a real broadcaster, a real professional. In fact, one of the great BBC broadcasters of my generation and one I've long admired. I've admired her for her clarity, admired her for her coolness, admired her for her composure under pressure and admired her for her sheer professionalism. I cannot believe my good fortune today. My guest is Kate Adi OBE, Chief News Correspondent at the BBC for 14 years and well-known among broadcasting professionals as well as British and BBC news audiences around the world essentially for her war reporting. Now, before going any further, I'd like to thank the International School of Geneva for giving me the opportunity to make this interview. For non-British listeners out there today who might not know Kate Adi, she came to prominence in 1980 at the time of the unforgettable Iranian embassy siege in London, an event that at the time riveted us to our TV sets at home. She was first on the scene as the SAS, that's the British Army, stormed the embassy. And she's witness to events that would make some of us envious, but probably most of us very thankful that we were not there personally. Here are a few examples of what she's done. The American bombing of Tripoli in 86. The Lockerbie bombing of the fateful Pan Am Flight 103 in 88. Tiananmen Square protests of 89. The Gulf War of 1991. The, former war in U- the, the war in former Yugoslavia. The 1994 Rwandan genocide. And the war in Sierra Leone in 2000. She's been shot at, wounded, criticised, but above all praised and admired. And now she's supposed to be retired. She's written numerous books. She's in great demand as a public speaker. She's been honoured by many universities and can be heard weekly on BBC Radio, anchoring one of my favourite programmes from our own correspondent. So, Kate Aidy, welcome to Le Chat, welcome to Fune, and thank you for making time to be my guest on the McKay interview. Thank you very much. I hope I don't get tongue-tied by my nervousness in talking to you. So much of your journalistic career has been identified with war. My first question is just about that. What is it about war that attracts you? And what has being so close to war and conflict taught you about human nature and the human condition? Well, there's a question. Um, War does not attract me. Uh, I'm a child of post-war Europe, uh, born after the Second World War. Uh, to the amazement of most students I talk to, who <laughs> think I was there during the first and the second. Um, <laughs> I took up a job as a reporter, and it was made very clear to me early on that you did what was thrown at you. There was no sense of choice, no sense sense of thinking. Oh, I really rather fancy doing that. In fact. We as reporters in BBC News were known as the taxi rank. In other words, you just stood there and they grabbed the first one who came in the room and sent them somewhere. And you could end up doing um, uh, a dog show, uh, a riot, or an interview with the Prime Minister. So it was a matter of who was there at what time. For the written word or for radio as well? This was for radio and for television. And when I first was working for television news... It became abundantly clear that alongside the dog shows and the interviews with politicians and the industrial stories, there were international affairs. And sadly, this often involves conflict. You also got that in strikes, demonstrations, protests. Conflict is one of those uh, events, one of something that happens, an activity which is all too common, and so is war. And so war came into... Uh, the scope of the reporting assignments. In other words, it was just 
another story to do. And so you found yourself heading off to certain conflicts and you weren't, you hadn't chosen to do it. You weren't particularly attracted to it. But there is one big but in all of this and it's also the reason why war figures rather a lot in, in our media and on tel TV screens in particular. It's because it's significant. Um, the shape of Europe today is very much the result of First and Second World War deliberation uh, or the negotiations after those wars changed boundaries, moved whole populations and affected tens if not hundreds of millions of lives. War is horribly significant. So that's why reporters cover wars. Let's go back to you a little bit more on that one again. I listened to one of your reports uh, where you said something like, I went beyond the borders of danger. Is it possible to describe to me why you put yourself at such great personal risk for a good story? I never just, put myself being... in personal risk, let's be oh. absolutely clear about that. A journalist's job is to bring the story back, not to be part of the story, not to become the story. And if you're injured, um, uh, you won't be able to do your job properly. So we're quite wary creatures. I can climb trees like no one else I know my age. Um, I can go hide behind things. I don't get ashamed. I can go flat on the ground uh, if I think there might be hot metal flying about and I'm not embarrassed by that. You don't stand around like idiots you see in feature movies you know, who appear to stride into battle scenes, etc. Um, okay, professional soldiers can do that, but they are trained and they um, can defend themselves. But journalists are relatively timid. And there's only one occasion professionally, which you've quoted, where I went beyond what I would normally do, wondering whether we would get back. And that was in Tiananmen Square in China in 1980. Nine. And I went there and did that because we knew when we were out in the midst of a massacre by the Chinese army of unarmed and not hostile, peaceable citizens and students, a five-hour-long massacre one night, which then continued the next few days, we knew that the Chinese authorities would deny what had happened, and we wanted to get the evidence and we knew they'd try and prevent us, which they did. Um, and we were determined to get the evidence. And it has to be said, I think it's justified by the fact that the Chinese government today still denies the truth of what happened. But we got the evidence. So I'm not attracted to danger or risk. And you take a lot of precautions. And you only go as far as you know that you can bring the story back, because that's your job. So let's talk about some of the subjects uh, over the last many years of your career. What are some of the strong and unpleasant men, when I say strong, it's in inverted commas, um, Karadich, Gaddafi, Charles Taylor, did you meet all of them? And, 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 and would you, uh, com how would you compare them? And have you come across unpleasant and strong women? And does one stick in your memory, for example? I'm I don't see stories and people in those sort of terms. Um, it's very much the case that uh, when you meet people, particularly today, this has changed over the years, um, they are full of knowledge about how to deal with the camera, with PR, with burnishing their image rather than coming over as a brute 
and a violent tyrant. Um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and I was when I started working, um, people were more ignorant, naive about particularly television and how they would show up on television. And there was less public relations around as well. Um, I've never actually thought it one of the great significant points of reporting work. You you meet the tyrant; they tend to say what they you expect them to say. Um, and you are much more interested into what is happening to the nation as a whole. Uh, current affairs, let's, I'm going to draw a very sort of uh, artificial line here. The business of current affairs is often to find the big individuals, the powerful people, and interview them and find out what their policies are, how their brains tick. Um, that isn't the job of news, usually. We're normally there when somebody's actually set their palace on fire. Or um, there are hordes at the gate clamoring for them, or they are bent on doing something. And you're much more interested in the wider picture and in the ordinary people and what's going to happen to the whole nation or the group or whatever. Uh, you do meet these people, and there are oddballs around. They're also nasty people, but they don't have to be well-known to be villains and brutes. And you can meet them anywhere. And you do, in um, particularly in chaotic situations. Turn to a different side of the conflict now, and, and a question you must have been asked, and you will see it from a particular, uh, a knowledgeable perspective and have an opinion. What is your view on women in the front line of infantry and fighting shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand, even bayonet to bayonet, alongside men? Well, that hasn't been fully actually um, proposed by the British Army. There still are going to be some limits um, if the whole thing goes through. But there are other armies where this happens. Um, I take, I have. Two views. I wrote a book about women and war, and women in uniform in particular. And historically, women have always been left at home um, or butchered as victims. Don't let's say that women haven't got part of war. They're normally the, the, vi the victims of it, and they don't have anything to defend themselves and aren't taught how to. Um, women don't, as it were, uh, you know, aren't left out of war. They're left out of the decision-making, most uh, decision-making is made by males, and then war is carried out by men who've always actually taken up the weaponry. Um, uh, women, I think, you have to start from the position, particularly in educated, um, civilized countries, you've got to take up a position that defending your country, which always becomes an issue at some point in your life, defending your, your, your country um, is both an obligation and a right and that's what women in the last hundred years have been fighting for, particularly um, in developed countries, uh, that we have uh, equal rights with men and you also take on equal responsibility. Therefore, you take on responsibility for defending your country. How you do it has to be worked out in the most practical ways. And by that I mean um, that if you're going to defend uh, using um, and you have armed forces which have... Uh, aircraft and ships and heavy armour and all sorts of other things, and also now cyber warfare. And women are perfectly capable of flying planes and of commanding ships, going to sea, and of driving tanks. What is specifically being talked about is um, the physical, brutal, uh, what you could call almost boxing ring type of context, the hand -hand Where you have, yeah, what is known as um, uh, CQC, cl close quarter combat. And in that, 
stronger, physically bigger people will win. Well, the first thing you have to point out is that some people, some men, are small, puny, and weedy. So you've got to be selective, therefore, all over the place. There will be women, and there's no doubt about that, who will come up to the physical rigors and the standards. If they do, then there is no argument for keeping them out, except from one small one, which we'll come to. Um, you are selective about it. And if women do reach the standard, what you don't do is lower standards. Mm. I have no time for that in any kind of professional uh, respect when it comes to... Um, uh, uh, discrimination. Standards are standards, and you must reach them for professionalism. And if women reach those standards, file when are good. There's one small point. There is another argument, and I have seen this at close quarter. Uh, there is an argument which actually goes back to our origins and Darwin, that we become a herd at times. We close ranks. That's what you can see animals do when they're attacked. And the herd goes group think yeah. and group feeling. Now, if it's mixed and you have men and women, there is an argument which says the testosterone-fueled aggression needed for close-quarter combat is a male testosterone-driven thing. Well... It has some, there's a good deal of evidence, this may be a fact. Put it this way, when gangs of blokes attack people, they don't really want girls come along. No, it's true. You know, That's when true. huge groups, so there might be an argument. Then there's another one, and I'm interested that people have missed this one out. Why not have all women groups? <laughs> that's not discrimination, that's using their skills, that's acknowledging they're going to do it. Hmm. So you do that. Today my guest is Kate Aidy, for many years the BBC's chief news correspondent and we're on the International School of Geneva's campus in Fune, just outside the city. Uh, just to change again, tack a little bit, okay, you've reported on many conflicts for, for a long time. You must have met numerous politicians who ultimately negotiate the peace after conflict. Do you have any observations which you could share with us about politicians as a breed? Or is each political case, each country, each political culture different? Yes. I mean, well, of course, they share characteristics of ambition and also probably a bit more education than a lot, in, particularly if you're looking at third world countries, than, than a lot of their people and they've had opportunities. If you're looking at rich countries, uh, they may be there because of money. Look at the American presidential race um, rather than brains. Um, um, you're looking at different uh, uh, groups very much and their cultural background and history is everything to do with it. On the other hand, um, politicians in Europe are held in fairly low regard these days. And it's partly because we're all better educated. We no longer have that automatic respect for people. That went many decades ago in it's most the of, of Europe. Uh, the no deference. There's no deference around, or very little of it. Um, deference is, is pretty well dying, particularly in, in Europe, North uh, and, and the States. Um, and we are better educated. Uh, when somebody gets up and says something fairly stupid, we say it's fairly stupid. Uh, so uh, politicians have to tread carefully. Um, 
it's we're in a very interesting period where across Europe again uh, the old-fashioned traditional tradition political parties are fragmenting and partly it is because nobody uh, feels that the people who uh, put themselves up as leaders are particularly smarter than other people and this is the ultimate democracy in a way. That's something quite different away from war now about your career. You spent your entire career, from what I've read, in public broadcasting at the BBC. Is that just the way that your career has worked out? Or do you have a particular point of view or preference for public over commercial Broadcasting. The, the, the practical reason was that when I joined the BBC, I joined in radio, and that was the only radio outfit around. There weren't even any commercial stations. I then went through on the television side, ending up in the national uh, newsroom. Um, at a time when discrimination was fairly rife, uh, right across life and in the employment spectrum. Uh, but the BBC um, was not so prejudiced against women. The only other station to work for was ITN, and it treated women abominably, the girlies. Okay. So there was no way of going down there. Uh, women weren't given any choice to do any serious reporting. Uh, they didn't do it for years and years. So there was no attraction to going to that. Um, um, one, one last question. That's not to say that there wasn't discrimination... In every level and every time you went out. I went out, first of all, with news crews. This is in the 1970s. And I'd be with the cameraman and sound men. They were all male in those days. And you'd go and see people and they'd say, when's the reporter arriving? And I'd say, who do you think I am? They just assume you were the secretary or yeah, the assistant. sort of hanger-on assistant. Yeah. And so that went on for years. Yes, it is different now. Mm-hmm. Good, good. <laughs> One last question. Again, this is... Maybe a bit different from what you'd expect. It's part of the package and the persona that I have come to know on the radio and television as, as Kate Eighty. George Bernard Shaw said that it's impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. To my ear, you have this distinctive clarity in your voice and a welcome precision in the way you pronounce, pronounce and enunciate words and that you I find it good and easy to listen to and, and I'm not just flattering you because you're here in front of the microphone. Um in the 1940s and the 50s, you see how accents have changed in England. Just listen to Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson. And now we've got Jonathan Wass and uh, Russell Brand and even Margaret Thatcher's voice changed over I'm 20 years. I'm waving something know? at you. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm waving uh, my tiny little hearing aids. I've been deaf since I was born partially deaf. It's never bothered me. I never discovered until I was about 38 and blown up in Beirut in the Lebanon and I went to see an ear specialist and he said, I won't worry, damage is only temporary, but you're deaf as opposed to anyway. So what are you bothered about? Um, and that business of clarity is purely hearing my own voice. Really? Uh, you're just being too simple. modest? Really the second, a, yeah, that is, that's, that's the first fact. reason for okay. that slightly sort of, you know, sort of precise Tone. But my question was really about but the other thing is accent. accents in no, the no, UK you're talking and about, you're talking and about English, English yeah. people and class, yeah. or, class well, or class, yeah. or class, or class. The way <laughs> the English pronounce things, um, people say you can actually read between three and ten things about them in the first sentence. Their background, their parentage, their um, the professional uh, uh, or lack of education, the sort of school they went to, the area they live, and 
also their confidence that you can read all of this into how they pronounce things. It's a nightmare in some ways because back in the 60s when I was a student and we were all, you know, liberal, hippie, let it all hang out, let's protest, look, look, you know, wow, marvellous time. I was a professional student demonstrating about everything. And we thought the world was changing. And one of the things we thought was changing specifically was that of class, class. Or class. Um, We actually (laughs) thought there was a big social revolution underway, and there was in a way. Uh, Pop music, the Beatles, uh, the sense of hippiedom, new things, new architecture, the post-war depression was going, we were going to be changed, more modern, more progressive, more liberal. An enormous amount of our law changed. We brought in laws about uh, women's equality, about uh, the treatment of gays, um, uh, eventually about race. These things all changed, much more liberal, more progressive. Um, We thought with that would come a a complete change in this rather peculiar and very specifically British class system. I said British now rather than but it's different (laughs) right through the British laws. But... Voice is the great marker of it. And to my amazement today, it still is. Now, the BBC speaks with what you can call a sort of middle-middle to to upper-middle class uh, sound. Not because the BBC speaks with it, but because people in power, people with influence, people who are successful, people are in positions where they hold opinions, people who are decision-makers tend to speak like that. So people say that's the BBC voice. If you look at those who work for the BBC, they're much more varied. There is one single rule in the BBC which nobody understands and nobody accepts, but it is. You don't have to speak frightfully nicely like that. (laughs) You don't have to speak plain... I speak northern, what's all called northern educated English. It's a specific sort. I was born in the northeast. I don't speak southern received pronunciation. These are the technical bits of it. But... um, The BBC demands that you speak clearly. Quite a small number of our regional accents have people from other parts of the country going, what? It it, it is so dense. And if anybody challenges me on that, I'll say central Glaswegian is another world. (laughs) So uh, my area is Geordie. Uh, Now I can speak the local accent. Um, I learnt it. I learned myself, Jody, you know, I can talk like that. You can hear Ant and Deck on the radio. But they speak enunciated Jody because they went to drama school. Uh. So they don't speak like everybody on the street. So it's an accent which can be understood if you speak it in an enunciated way. If it all elides, well, I've gone down the tune, dear, you don't know what I'm going to do. You know, people can say, what? So you don't read the news in that. There's another thing, and that is accents also suggest authority. And for some reason in Britain, you can speak, you can read the news in a West Country (laughs) or middle-class Irish accent, but you can't read it in Geordie or Brummie. How's that? Kate Eddie, I could talk to you and listen to you for hours. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Wish you all success with your books, your speaking engagements, and also here with the students today at La Chetonnerie. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was The McKay Interview with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, 
worldradio.ch.